0: all right everybody welcome back to a very very special episode of movie mentors i'm your host jeremy boros and today i get to live a childhood dream y'all talking to a man whose work has inspired me since i was knee high to a grasshopper in fact one of his films is the film that made me fall in love with the movies the film i'm talking about is none other than hook and today we're joined by its screenwriter James V. Hart. If you're a 90s kid like me, then there's a 99.9% chance that you've seen one of Jim's movies. Whether it was falling into a fever dream with Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, flying high in Neverland with Steven Spielberg's Hook, or flying even further into the cosmos with Robert Semeckis' Contact. Jim's unrivaled imagination and screenwriting prowess has been a continual source of hope, creativity, and adventure for me and for millions of people around the world. It's pretty rare to get the opportunity to sit down with an artistic hero. So it's a tremendous pleasure to share our inspiring, humorous, and extended conversation with today's mentor, James V. Hart. I feel like I have to start by saying some things which, you know, I've been able to interview some really fantastic people for this project. And you are, of course, in that mix. Um, But I don't think... I may not ever have the chance to interview someone whose work has so personally impacted me and my creative journey as you, sir. And so... You don't
1: get get out much, do you?
0: No, but in a lot of ways, you know, when something is so personal, it just feels like it's yours, like it's your DNA. Well, that's what Hook was for me and Muppet Treasure Island and so many of your films. And not just for me, I know for millions of people around the world and especially my generation. And when I think back, being like a seven year old kid and seeing Hook and flashing forward to sitting across from you right now, it just kind of reinforces for me what your films kind of are about which is hope and belief and connection and just sort of the magic of the way the world works and with that i just want to say thank you so much for being here for being who you are and for talking with me today
1: glad i survived long enough to hear all this
0: (laughs) um i want to start by reading uh three quotes from your films that i got to watch all in the last week so don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of the unlived life. You're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost, so cut off, so alone, only you're not. See, in all our searching, the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. And of course, to live, to live will be an awfully big adventure. When I watch those films, and that was Tuck Everlasting and Contact and Hook. And I put them all with August Rush and even Dracula in its own way. So much of your work is is about this life-affirming, humanistic viewpoint. And I, I just wanted to know for you, Jim, what is your spirituality, your philosophies, and how has, for you, that become part of your work and journey?
1: So, an easy question to start out Let's with. Start Thanks there. a lot. Great. <laughs> well, it gets easier. For some reason, I just flashed on my childhood in Texas when you were reading these and my dad, my mom, and my brother. And I know that Tuck Everlasting, Jake figures a lot into this, my son, who's now my writing partner, and Julia. Jake brought Tuck Everlasting home to me from school when he was in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. We'd already done Hook. And he said, Dad, this is a movie. And I had never I knew Tuck, but I never I never I never really knew Tuck Everlasting. And when I read it, it's about um, dealing with mortality and death for a very young audience, which I thought was a brilliant what what Natalie Babbitt did. I thought was a brilliant challenge. And I was always fascinated growing up with. Um, with life after death, not knowing, I mean, we, we, you lose a grandparent, you lose a dog, you know, We love, you know, and where, what happens to them. And I also was completely and totally enamored with living forever. I thought that was really cool.
0: Okay. So when I was 10,
1: <laughs> you know, okay, don't grow up and live forever. And then thematically, then I became a space nut, an outer space guy, and it was never about the bad aliens. I didn't buy into that. I saw the day the earth stood still when it was a brand new film in the theater. That's how old I am. <laughs> so, the idea that the universe that we would that just be us, I never I, I never bought into that. that. That's you know, even though you taught in church and all this stuff, you know, that's heaven. The the idea of being able to go into the universe and visit and see what's there since I was 3 years old.
0: Was that something you think that your your parents exposed you to, or were you a voracious reader or a film lover?
1: Well, as my, a kid? I, I, two things. My mother was an educator, so she had us read. Uh, I was a voracious reader. My dad took me to drive in movies. I mean, they'd, he'd throw my brother on the back of the car, pop popcorn, and we'd go to the movies. And every Saturday, my mother would drop us off at the Gateway Theater in Fort Worth, Texas mm-hmm. at 10 in the morning with all your buddies, 25 <laughs> cents a quarter. Got you a uh, double feature, a jillion cartoons, three or four serials, and we would spend the entire day. There was never any movies are bad for you or TV's bad for you or don't read these books that are bad for you. It was never, we were never edited that way. So in a way, they encouraged my imagination without really knowing what they were creating. <laughs> you know, uh, we would we would reenact the the movies in the backyard on Sunday. The whole gang would come over. We we would literally reenact the movies. My me too, brother to my your brother movies. Yeah, well <laughs> my brother and I chopped the hell out of my mother's castor bean patch after we saw Spartacus. We went in and killed, you know, and did gladiators. <laughs> I grew up at a time when when television was just exploding and film was the great palaces and the movie theaters, you know, you were there all the time. And my dad would let me stay up late and watch a million dollar movie. I saw they die with their boots on with Errol Flynn at eleven o'clock at night, you know. So I got I got a I had got a um an education without knowing it. I didn't really realize what was being, and it tweaked what's out there. What is heaven? And my father was a great storyteller. So was my grandmother mm. uh, and my aunt. So we, we would sit and, and listen to them tell these stories about their childhood or about the war or about, you know. Uh, so I, get, I also came from a great tradition of storytelling.
0: And so when did you start writing or start thinking about writing as a career?
1: In junior high school, I started doing plays. And I started performing writing, or writing performing okay and, I, and then you, in english class you have creative writing and all that stuff so um i had a my book voc- because i read so much i had a vocabulary that was not normal <laughs> and a couple of my teachers picked up on it and miss miss west no oh god miss turner she was only four years older than we were but it seemed like ancient and she plucked me out of the herd and encouraged me to write and i didn't know you could make a living as a writer it never occurred to me. I wanted to be Dick Van Dyke. I wanted to be Discovered. I wanted to be an actor. It was right, terrible. Right. You know, I wanted to be Errol Flynn. And good old L.M. Kit Carson. God rest his soul and God bless him. If you don't know who L.M. Kit Carson is, go Google him. Uh, he was the leader of the independent filmmaking. Jim McBride with, directed his first film with Kit. Uh, David uh, Holtzman's Diary. Kit went on to mentor and inspire tons of people. He plucked me out of a freshman film class at SMU because I asked certain questions. He said, come here. So we went and had coffee. And he said, this is what you're going to do with the rest of your life. This You're going to write. You, you, you're. This is going to be what your career is.
0: And how did that sit
1: with you? It was the first time I'd ever been, well, my mom and dad, I told them I wanted to be in the movie business. And they said, okay, how do you do that? I, was,
0: I don't know. Amazing parents. <laughs> so
1: I went to SMU where they had a fledgling film department with G. William Jones ran it, ran it who knew every critic, knew everybody in town. And that film department was n- nothing, zero. And by the time I graduated, Bill Jones had had uh, uh, George Roy Hill bring a wet gain answer print of, of uh, Butch at Sundance to show our little
0: thirty-member,
1: wow. you know, school. That's yeah. Spent hours with us uh dennis hopper and, and jack nicholson showed up with easy rider are you serious no i'm serious and and i, I watched i jack nicholson like every co-ed would sign his arm you know because <laughs> we didn't have ipads and shit you know yeah and alan pakula brought his first films to us so i didn't realize i thought everybody got to do that
0: right so hollywood came to you also so and, it, and it felt put, more tangible put the hook in, a in our ways. mouth
1: and 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 i ended up driving to um california to meet francis coppola when i just had just graduated with Wait my, what with my buddy I know
0: it's like how and wh- why how did that happen
1: Stephen Graham uh, who was a graduate student friend of mine we he'd made a, a really powerful narrative uh, film with dialogue and everything that nobody was doing it's a 30 minute film everybody's making you know exploding coke bottles and psychedelic shit right so Stephen and I sent the film out to Coppola Zoetrope was um was on the map of all of us who were paying attention to film Francis had just done the rain people Lucas's short film was uh had he'd been involved with that so we everybody wanted to go to San Francisco
0: so he was he was basically continuing what Corman did for him exactly with you guys plucking out yeah. students exactly
1: and- yeah and and also and I mean he gave George's first you know he, he was he was wonderful that way so we sent him the film sent him a letter and just assumed we could drive out there and see him there was two people BBS Burt Schneider who did uh, amazing films Um we were going to drive to L.A. and see him and then drive to San Francisco and see Coppola. Just send a letter and here's our film. Okay. We stopped on the way in in, uh, in Towson and hung out with Dennis Hopper. <laughs> you know, got stoned with Dennis. We'd met his brother who was his chef. He had a, bought a villa there. The Indians all hated him. But I mean, that was our, that was like, and this is, we're supposed to be in Vietnam. Get to Coppola's. It's when the old, it was his old building with the big coffee, the big machine. And um, we arrived and announced ourselves. And receptionist looked at us like, so we're the guys from Texas. <laughs> we sent Francis our film. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. We're, we're here to see Mr. Coppola, you know. And we would wait there every day in the waiting room until 5 o'clock. And she would say, he's really busy. He's not going to be able to see you. Oh, my goodness. It's okay. We'll be back tomorrow. Well, I don't know. If that's, you know, we'd show up the next day. Wait patiently, and finally um, on Friday, all of a sudden, I see through the door, the hallway door, he's coming. Francis comes out, and we go, "Mr. Coppola, Mr. Coppola, we're the guys <laughs> from Texas. Did you see our movie?" And and he didn't even—he wheeled and walked away from us and waved at us over his shoulder and said, "Keep making movies." Aww. Except we heard Francis Coppola just told us to keep making movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's how
0: you got to think.
1: Yes. So we wow, and he actually did help with the Corman connection. He got Stephen a job on a film that Corman was doing in Dallas called Gas, that George Armitage directed. The shot at SMU used a lot of our friends. So he did. He turned around and said, "I'm going to introduce you to Roger." But hmm. all we heard was, "Keep making movies."
0: And boy, did you ever! You were making <laughs> movies with him a couple Finally, of years later. Well, 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 not a couple
1: of years. It was we'll get to twenty years later.
0: So then so your your first feature is gimme an F that you're credited on, at least on IMDB. So how many years after this story did that happen and how did you get it made?
1: Okay, that was sixty-nine. So in seventy two, I'm in LA. We, we, I produced a couple of low-budget films. That's how I met my wife, Judy. We made a film with Leon Capitanis called Summer Run in, all over Europe. Won a lot of awards and sort of set us—we got the Texas money. We got the bug, you know. We made a film that was really ambitious and very European. So we moved to L.A., started trying to do the next thing, and I got tired of you know, raising money and trying to be a producer at 24. Is not, it's really hard, even though we had lots of opportunities. I started writing. So, Gimme an F was based on my my years as a male cheerleader, teaching male t- teaching cheerleader clinics around the country from '66 to '68.
0: Whoa! You just opened up <laughs> a whole new.
1: <laughs> and and we weren't gay. I mean, we you know I figured out real early in high school. I was a cheerleader in high school.
0: That's in, so crazy. Texas,
1: and I figured out real early that that's that, how you meet girls yeah they they ride on your lap on the way back in the bus and they cry if they lose and they you know or they they celebrate if they win and their boyfriends are all smelly and beat up yeah. so i wrote this really wrong ra- i sat with a legal pad and i said told you i'm gonna write a script about my children's days i'm not seeing anything i wrote a really raunchy body raucous animal house type script it finally it got produced by martin Pohl and some people at fox who too couldn't handle the language that I had put in women's mouths. And it was all language I'd heard. I was one of the girls. And that's what I put down on the script. And they begin to undo it and sanitize it and turn it into a dance movie while my friend Steven Friedman was making Slapshot. I said, that's gonna be a hit.
0: So you get Gimme an F Made and it does okay. And then there's a period of six years, Mm -hmm. right? And you get married and you have kids and Jake, your son, gives you this idea. Of course, I know the story, but maybe you <laughs> want to just tell uh, an abridged version of it. I guess.
1: Well, I had a couple of bad movies made in between there, but I hadn't written anything, and um, that you were producing in yeah, between. no, they, those were the days when you could make development deals. I wrote for Redford and Newman, you know. I wrote for, I wrote I had a string of unproduced scripts. I wrote uh, for John Abnet. I wrote for Bernie Brillstein. I, you know, it was a, I, I was making an incredible living not having any movies made. I wrote for Spielberg and Frank Marshall.
0: You were living in L.A.? No, in New York. In New York,
1: okay. Which my agent said, you'll never have a career in New York. And Judy said, I'm not living in L.A., so we lived in New York. But when I left L.A. and I went back to New York, everybody said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to write. So I sat down and wrote Dracula, a version of Dracula. I sat down and wrote uh, Protector, which is still Jake's favorite film that I did for Frank Marshall that Stephen wanted to do. This is 82, still way ahead of Hook around 1987 Jake would say to me dad all my friends want to know what movies you've done And I said well there's a closet, F, closet <laughs> closet, yeah closet full of scripts um so we started we would play this what- if game at the t- at the dinner table to try to get find me an idea for dad to go work uh what if um and Julie was three and Jake was five or six what if Cinderella slipper broke or didn't fit her foot you know uh, what if um, Prince Charming had bad breath and and Sleeping Beauty refused to let him kiss her, you know. Uh, what happened with Frodo's ring It doesn't fit. It's too small. Yeah. You know? Uh
0: These know. are all brilliant. Where are these scripts? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and so finally one night we we're doing this, and Jake says, Hey, did Peter Pan ever grow up? And I've you've heard this, but I've like a really bad father. I said, What a stupid question. Of course he didn't grow up. And then Jake defiantly said, Yeah, but what if Peter Pan grew up? And the bells and whistles went off, the heavens opened up. I went, what a fucking great idea. Mm-hmm. So that night we actually—I mean, I stole his idea and then took all the credit for it. Good he father. Got his cottage paid for. It. That night we cobbled out a—we cobbled <laughs> out a story. That's how you
0: justify it. I yeah. yeah. love that. Yeah. Glad you're writing part is now. No, no, now.
1: Yeah, no <laughs> uh, not, share credit? Are you kidding? Yeah. Um, so that night we cobbled out a story. We all agreed that the worst thing we could do to Peter Pan if he grew up was make him a lawyer. I
0: was going to ask you that.
1: Yeah. And I was terrified to tell anybody this idea. Judy said, this is the best thing you ever come up with, you know. And I said, well, Jake actually came up with it. I called I call my agent, uh, CA at that time, and I, I pitched the idea to him. And he went, nobody's ever going to do that. But it's a great idea. I think I pitched it around town. I pitched the, the hell out of the story, you know. And the I remember one example going, this is really great, but I just don't believe Peter Pan, I don't believe grown-ups can fly. Right. Yeah. You know?
0: I mean, it's antithetical to the whole point of being Peter Pan. So
1: it went on the shelf. I had three years of mourning. Every Christmas, they'd give me more Peter Pan and Hook gifts, and I'd go, stop it. Mm -hmm. And finally, Nick Castle had just done a film called The Boy Who Could Fly, and he also did Last Starfighter. And his producers came to me, because I'd written a script for them called Warrior Blue, a big sci-fi, friendly aliens, Mm -hmm. contact, first message from space. It's called Warrior Blue. And they said, this is great. We're not going to make it. What do you have on your shelf that nobody wants to do? I can't believe I haven't told this. And I went, I do have something. And I pitched them hook. And they said, let us see it. So they had 10-page treatment. They said, Nick wants to sit down. So Nick and I sat down. He was in favor at that time with, uh, with, with TriStar and, and Columbia. He went to the head of the studio and said, I want to do this. The head of the studio went, I'll make you a lowball. I'll make you a lowball development deal. It won't go anywhere. So they paid us, but chump change. But they let Nick and I go off for a year and smoke cigars and drink scotch and and create this whole world of what What if Peter Pan grew up? And we had a ball. And we turned it in. And it was Mike Medavoy had taken over the studio. And Mike Medavoy went, "Hmm, this is really good. Better than good. This is, this is gigantic." But he didn't want Nick to direct it. Anyway, I turned Hook in, and six weeks later, I turned in Dracula, and my agency fires me. You're you're 44 years old. You've got nothing produced. There's nobody here that really gets what you do. And I said, I'm writing Hook and Dracula. I said, and they said, Yeah, well, that, those are never going to get made. And my and my lawyers went, We'll have you an agent in five minutes. Couldn't get me an agent, you know. Crazy. Um, so I said, I went back to my agent and said, Listen, just keep representing me until I finish these two scripts. Then you can let me go. You're going to get commissioned anyway. You know, let, let me see what, just, right. and he said, okay, you're covered. So I turn in Hook, and six weeks later, I turn in Dracula. And Dracula, we developed at the USA Network for a TV movie. Mm. That's the best we could do. So uh, Hook goes in, and uh, we have no money. We're, we we rent out our apartment. We take the kids to to Montana to visit friends, driving across country, you know, and uh, I check in, I pay phones, you know, didn't, didn't have the, the brick yet, you know, <laughs> Go, we're eating at Cadillac Jack's. I'll never forget it. And I go downstairs to the loo, and I said, I'm going to call my agent. Because he was on my answering machine. Please call me. So I get John Levin. Thank God. he's We're still together. John Levin on the phone, and he says, um, I have some news for you. There's somebody important wants to, to direct Hook. And I didn't even know they were sending it out. And I said, not Nick? And he said, no, Bigger. And I remember saying to him, well, if it's not Steven Spielberg, this conversation is over. And he went, that's who it is. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and we're all bu- a buzz about Hook, you know, and it's a question whether I'm going to stay on it or not, but it's going to get made. And John calls me and says, because um, Dracula, we had to get away from USA Network. It was a TV movie. And they actually gave it to me and said, you have a year. Go do it. But down to the hour, don't yeah, we'll we'll take it back and we'll ruin it. We'll butcher it, but we're going to give you a year. Huh. Uh, Karen Moore. Great. I mean, she's, she read my script of Dracula and said, we can't make this for $2 million as a TV movie. Oh my God.
0: No, <laughs> but, looking at it, yeah.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> so John Levin took the hook script to Robin and Dustin before Stephen. Oh, really? Robin and Dustin were attached before Stephen, and they picked five directors to go to. And, of course, Stephen was the one that they both wanted. So I'm getting all kinds of good news. And Dracula's still sitting there, and John's saying, don't worry, I have an idea. C.A. was trying to get Winona Ryder at the time to leave ICM and come to them, so they were sending her all these scripts. And on the bottom of the pile was my Dracula. And so when they went back to her, when Levin went the end, she said, well, I want to do Dracula. And the agents are why? She said, have you read it? And Levin had the instant idea. It was his idea to go to Coppola. Which why? I had that, been struggling. Like an interesting choice. I had been struggling. No, perfect choice. Really? Okay. Whenever anybody would ask me about who I wanted to direct Dracula, I would say David Lean. And they would go, what? It's a horror. And I said, no. It's a giant sweeping epic. If you read the book, right. it's a gigantic epic. It's not you know, closets and hallways and fog and, and coffins. It's this beautiful, amazing. And they would go, really? So when, when John said Coppola, I just went, that's it. But he didn't tell me that. Until after Winona had asked Francis to read the script, because she'd stiffed him on Godfather Three. So Levin calls me up and says, "Okay, um, Winona loves the script; she's in, and she went to Coppola to ask him to read it to see if this is a career move she should make." And Coppola said to her, "You should definitely do the do it." And oh, by the way, who's directing?
0: You had both at the same time, same going. time
1: back to back on the Sony lot. There was. There was actually golf carts that had Hook and Dracula on them together.
0: It should have just been your face. <laughs> <I was laughs> <Yeah. saying.
1: laughs> well, and as we were as they were tearing down Neverland, they were building Transylvania. So, oh uh, my goodness! So, and and I, it was like I I don't know, and I'm sure now that's happened, but the same writer uh, with two back to back projects against those two guys. Incredible. Yeah. So, and it was a great learning experience for me with both of them. Well, th-
0: that that was actually my next question because I know that. With Hook, there, at least the news on the street was it was a big, challenging production. Dracula, there were challenges with the ending. On both of those, do you recall a specific kind of lesson you, you learned, something you took home from that?
1: Yeah, I got had new, great, as much as writers complain about directors, and sometimes they deserve to be complained about. From Stephen, I watched what Stephen went through with a script that wasn't ready to shoot. He was backed into a, uh, a Christmas release date. And he needed another six months with the script. He brought in all these other writers. He kept coming back to me. From Amelia Scotch-Marmo came in. Tom Stopper was writing the scenes. Um, Carrie Fisher came in to redo Tinkerbell. So he was he was literally, plus they were building these massive sets. He was forced to go into production before he knew what film he wanted to make. He had his old, his old Peter Pan ideas that he was grafting onto my story. Um, it was going to be a musical. No, it wasn't going to be a musical. So I really watched him show up every day, and and what he had to go through to manage all of this and get some piece of what he envisioned was amazing. I even asked him, "What percentage are you do you do you, do you settle for?" He said, "If I get twenty percent of what I'm seeing in my head, I'm on this project. I'm lucky," and it was a nightmare for him.
0: Well, what about for you? Did it did Hook wind up being what you envisioned?
1: I'll, I'll talk out of school here for a second since we're a national broadcasting. Um, <laughs> What I learned is that the, and I created it. Everybody thought Steven, this was his, it was Jake's creation. They even made Jake a hat that said creator on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And Robin would thank him every day for his job. Thank you, Jake son, for my job. Thank you, Jake son. <laughs> What I learned was the job of the screenwriter is to enable and, and support and embrace the director's vision and help them get their vision. Not by throwing fits, not by, you know, being angry and stalking off, But just by finding ways to make sure they get what what they need and hopefully that it dovetails with your vision so i was watching the script just splatter and malia was doing a great job but also Stephen has a million ideas a day and you're trying to you know you we were writing 30 pages a day of rewrites and i was seeing the story drift further and further and further away from from what i thought the heart of the matter was was this man coming to grips with his the loss of his childhood and what he would have to do to, to get his children back, he would have to go back and recapture that. And but the stakes would be higher. Um, so I would st- on Sunday night I would send Stephen faxes to his home. You forgot this. You haven't flown with the kids yet. You're you know you're missing. A, you know, what about this scene? Rufio was not going to be killed. He would not kill Rufio. He kept cutting that scene out. And my notes would be: If all you have is tomatoes and marbles and, and and pop guns, and nobody dies in Neverland, what's at stake for Peter? If there's no threat of death, then it's all it's it's just a big you know carnival ride. There's no no danger, no jeopardy for Peter. And and on Monday morning, I would see Stephen show up with sides and give him to Malia to go right up. And at first, I was pissed about that. And then I went, no, 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 don't be, if you're, if if it's getting done, it doesn't matter how it gets done. The process is get the best thing on the screen you can and stop trying, don't don't worry about taking credit or say, Hey, that was me. And then one day Kathy Kennedy is awesome force of nature. She is, and as as, she can scare the shit out of you. She did me a few times. She approached me one day uh, after between takes or something and said, I want to I want to talk to you. We got in the trailer, closed the door. And she said, okay. I know it's you and I'm going (laughs) what what did I do did I criticize you they find it she said I know it's you I know that those pages are coming from you and I'm going oh fuck! and she said don't stop and don't tell anybody and it was a real revealing moment for me because because it told me that I had made the right decision to quietly offer my assistants
0: do you still believe in that and that's something you do
1: writer, if you're just the writer you're not the director or the you know if you're just the writer or even if it's your your original your job is to enable not obstruct the director from achieving their vision i learned that with steven at the same time i'm with the maestro i'm with francis coppola who is a writer first and it was the most complete experience i've ever had in my i may never have that experience again he involved me in every aspect of the production, the rewrites, the had me working with Eiko Ishioka, had me working with Dante Ferretti, had me working with, the. you know, that he wanted a community of creative people around him doing this thing. We put the script through, we did a radio play where we had live audience and actors were up reading with sound effects and music and note cards that I was able to sit there and do rewrites from. We videoed uh, rehearsals. Uh, he had everybody up to Camp Coppola to uh, to read the book out loud and improvise and get into character. He had me in the last rehearsals that we were doing before we shot. He created he a, that
0: family like Corman well, Horm- yeah, yeah. did. Yeah. And,
1: and, but he's also a writer. Mm-hmm. He's a writer for He knows how hard it is to get that shit on the page.
0: Well, you kind of answered one of my questions, which is sounds like on Dracula, you were also very essential in creating the visual style, which is so unique in that movie. I mean, it's expressionistic. It's nightmarish. It makes you feel like you've become a vampire by by the end of it. You go through so many things. So so in that experience, you actually were involved with production design and not so much on Hook.
1: No, not except on Hook, I became very close with John Napier, who did the sets, and very close with um, uh, Anthony Powell, the costume designer. They became very close dear friends and still are. So they would come to me with John showed me, showed, he said, come here, I want to talk to you when we first met. He had the design going on when I got there. And he showed me the script that Stephen, he turned down several projects with Stephen. He wanted. He was a great theater designer. He had Cats and Sunset Boulevard and Lamia and all, you know, all this stuff he did. He said, this is the script that Stephen sent me. Look at the margins. And in the margins, he'd already started drawing pictures of the sets. He said, this is coming from the words you put on the page. Hmm. You know? And it, so it was interesting to see how the script had inspired one of the great production designers of all time, you know, good writer. Uh, well, but it, but it was it was interesting because I didn't I had not had that experience where you see the impact your words are having on Eiko Ishioka, Anthony Powell, you know Michael Bauhaus, uh, uh, Dante Ferretti, you know you, you, uh, John Napier. You don't see that, and this so Stephen gave me a great opportunity by letting me hang around. Francis put me to work. We need a scene where the, you know, go go off and write the scene. We're here doing this thing, you know. And I'd go off and write the scene and come back, and they'd, they'd, they'd all applaud. I got to work with Peter Ramsey. He stuck me in a room with Peter Ramsey, who is now a great animation director. Peter was a, a sketch artist, storyboard artist. And Francis had this idea that, that the writer and the sketch artist should work together. They should collaborate. So he said, Jim, I want you to take what Peter draws after he's read your scene go back and rewrite it and adapt what he's brought to the to the to the to the scene wow. interesting so peter and i became very great great friends francis did what he called the score he actually had all of peter's storyboards on one side shot for shot not just made up but shot for shot and the corresponding script of the shots on the left side and he put that up on a podium like a like a maestro score, like a like a score of an orchestra, so anybody he'd go up and refer to the page, camera angle, what the costume was, what you know. Just it was amazing, and I still got it. I've never seen that. We videotaped the storyboards with the readings they did in the radio play, so you always had a a running time. You always had a real time running version of the script. And as we go through and start, he would put in storyboards, he'd put in artwork, he'd put... And as he shot scenes in the rehearsals, he would, in the video, he would start plugging that in. So he always had a running narrative as the film ca- literally came to life.
0: This sounds like the beginning of the heart chart.
1: This is where it came from. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about that for sure. This short, is where it came from. Instrumental. It started with Francis. Yeah.
0: If you will indulge me, because I'm such a geek about Hook... I just want to go, I made a little thing called I'm Hooked on Hook questionnaire. <laughs> and just like... Is this kinda, trivia? No, it's not trivia. Oh, okay. No, trivia Trivia might come later. But this is just me needing to have my fan geek questions, okay. you know, answered, okay? So I I want to know, how did you come up with the boo-boo box? <laughs> because in my research, that's not a real pirate thing. So just quick on that.
1: That was completely and totally Stephen.
0: Okay, and Glenn Close being the pirate. Glenn Close played the pirate, yeah. There were so many cameos in that. They just were begging to
1: be in it or— Everybody wanted to be in it. In fact, Phil Collins is in it. I wanted Jimmy Buffett in it. I thought he was in it. No, Jimmy Buffett's not in it. Oh, my God. David Crosby's in it.
0: Okay.
1: Because Stephen didn't know who Jimmy Buffett was. Oh. But uh, now David and I, we're close, very close family friends and spent a lot of time together as a result of Hook. But— Phil Collins was desperate to be in the movie why he wanted he wanted to act he was said done a couple of films he wanted to be in something important like this he wanted to get Steven's attention you know he wanted to show that you know and so I wrote the inspector scene for Phil Collins yeah you know. and there was and it was like a five page scene and he rehearsed it and, and and practiced it and he gets to the set and Stephen had cut it down to a page and a half yeah so he's like oh poor Phil but you know there he is yeah and David the same way Crosby's in it Quincy Jones is in it uh, Glenn Close is in it. Ricky Dreyfus wanted to be in it, but but Steven said no. You're too. You're, I can't hide you. And
0: uh, and George Lucas
1: is on the bridge. George Lucas is... and that's Carrie. They're on the bridge. They're the couple that, that get dusted and yeah. spiral up into the you know.
0: Ah. Uh, is it true that Dustin was not your first choice?
1: No, he was not my first choice.
0: Who was your first choice?
1: I wrote this. The character I wrote was for Daniel Day Lewis in *Last of the Mohicans*. Did it ever that's get? That's the him? hook that Barry wrote. And that's the hook that I wrote.
0: Did it ever get to him?
1: No. Uh, I, Dustin Hoffman threw me. That surprised me. Mm. He loved it. He read the script and loved it and, of course, wanted it all rewritten.
0: Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis.
1: And huh. as Captain Hook was made in a different film. Wow. I wanted a charismatic matinee idol that you're, you could, could believe could actually steal your kid. Right. That was a real challenge to you as a father. And uh, Dustin, as good as he was, played the... Like a lot of the stage productions, you know, the Cyril Richard and and, um, they played that kind of vaudevillian, kind of over the top and not really a killer. And there's a speech that Dan Barry wrote about playing Captain Hook. Oh, really? It was a direction to the actors. He said, do not play this character for laughs. This character is, it steals children's souls.
0: I think, I think it was probably as much as I do like Cyril Richard in that he, I think, Gave it a different direction that was more of a dandy yeah. with
1: the eye shadow yeah. and yeah. all the rest uh, of it. How did you come up with bangerang? Again, this is interesting. Stephen wanted a, a war cry for the Lost Boys. I didn't come up with bangerang. It was it. It comes from a couple of African words. A couple of them are not very polite, <laughs> so uh, we had to be careful. He called me on the set one day and he said uh, we could we wanted to come up with a thing for Rufio's entrance. So I did come up with all that stuff. But he said, "What do you think about this?" And he said, "Bangerang," as, as as the war cry. I said, "Yeah." And he had all the kids do bangerang. So I can't claim credit for that. But that was what Stephen was doing. He he was ready and he wasn't ready. So he was confident enough to, to be able to stop thinking that we got to find a, a thing for Rufio. We got to we need an entrance. So he was confident enough to take that time to do it. And when it worked, it's brilliant. Like the food fight still my favorite scene in the whole movie
0: absolutely was that in your script
1: it was it was in the script but not as elaborate as that
0: was it your idea to put the lost boys in the trees yeah because peter's lair had been burned yeah. out yeah. yeah yeah i love that that was and really also cool.
1: we created lost boys that were not seven white kids from england you know we, right was diverse multi multiverse diverse from all different uh, walks of life and and periods
0: so at the end of the movie the last time we see Bob Hoskins playing Smee. He takes off Hook's coat, and then Hook and Peter have the duel. We don't see what happens to Smee except at the end where he's playing like a garbage man type, a cleaner in the park when Peter wakes up back yeah. in the real yeah. world. So can you give us your interpretation on that and how it relates to how the pirates managed to get to the other world and yeah. steal well, the Well, there's
1: two things. One is we shot what happens to Bob. He actually leaves with two of the mermaids and a bunch of gold in a rowboat.
0: To, Gets married and has mermaid
1: it, children. It, <laughs> that's it. Uh, that got cut out of the film.
0: Got it.
1: Him being the bottle washer at the end, so you're blurring the two worlds. I wanted the same actor that played Smee to be that guy. You know, maybe it was just a dream.
0: For you, is that Smee who's the cleaner in it's the park? The, it's is the, it's it Smee it's, or?
1: It's the, it's the incarnation of Smee. In terms of the pirate ship getting to the real world, in Barry's book, you could sail to Neverland. It was a real place. You could fly to Neverland. Barry also had a uh, a tunnel effect. There was a whole thing about uh, almost like a, the storm in Wizard of Oz. There was these cloud tunnels that you could enter like a portal. And so Hook found his way. Who you know? Who found his? Who found our way to the? You know? Yeah,
0: the world well, and stole found, Penn's children.
1: Yeah, he he found the way that so you could navigate. There was a way to get from Neverland back to London because in the book. Hook does come back with the Crocodile me. You know, and they're in the park in Kensington Gardens trying to, you know, trying to, try to find where's this guy? Where's Peter where was the the next Peter Pan? The book and the plays have so many things we've never seen.
0: So, was there ever a Hook sequel discussed?
1: Yeah. And I think I think Stephen had such a difficult time and also the film was perceived to be a failure. Which is absurd. And it's not. And uh I think that we even talked about doing a series about the Lost Boys. The reviews hurt. The box office hurt, but it was, and it was going to be gigantic overseas internationally.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know? it was $70 million budget, $300 million gross, I think. That, I mean, that's no, what I mean. Bigger than that. It's,
1: yeah. I, I've seen the gross sheets, what's actually paid back to the studio.
0: Really? Huge.
1: And the video and afterlife were gigantic.
0: Well, as we've discussed, you know, that movie was made for me, for <laughs> my <laughs> generation. It really and was. Everybody know? that I know loves and cherishes yeah. that movie. Yeah. So then, of course, one of the other movies that I absolutely devoured and I had not seen in like 10 years (laughs) was Muppet Treasure Island. Mm. It is hysterical. It's absolutely hysterical. So can you talk about your collaboration with the Henson crew and... What is it like when you're writing for characters that we know that aren't just in our imagination from a book, but you've got to write for the Miss Piggy and the Kermit the Frog we know?
1: Brian Henson is a treasure trove of experience because he grew up in, in the Muppet world. And he is, I think, one of the most underrated directors. You don't just direct Muppets. So when they brought me on board, um, they were about to pull the plug on the project at Disney. They weren't happy with the script. And Brian came to me, and we had met as a result of Hook, and wanted me to read the script and see what I could come up with because Frank Oz was about to pull out. And I read the script, and there were no human beings in it. I mean, it's just gonna the, be the Gonzo and Rizzo played Jim and Hawkins. Long John Silver was a puppet, was a Muppet. Oh. And uh, I was going, you can't, you, you can't. This is There's a reason this is not going to work. You must have human beings as this core relationship. Between Jim Hawkins and, and Long John Silver, that's another one of my favorite villains. I mean, I, you know, to me, Captain Hook wasn't a villain. Captain Hook was a tortured, tormented, you know, embittered soul who was incredibly smart and brilliant. Long John Silver taught Jim Hawkins all kinds of things about growing up, what a shipmate is, what his being loyal is, and then he was betrayed. You know, and you still, in the end, you Jim Hawkins lets Long John Silver go. So there's
0: a real relationship there. Yeah. yeah.
1: More so he didn't have a father. His father was lost at sea, you know. So, so anyway, Brian, I gave him my ideas. He said, Let's we're all gonna be back east. So we came up to my house for three days, snowbound, and figured it out. And he said, Frank Oz will not do this film, he will not work with a kid. He doesn't want to work with child actors. I said, Well, okay, that's a problem because Jim and Hawkins as Rizzo and Gonzo, Yeah, you know, movie. So Brian hung in there. We had a great time. They let me write the script with Jerry. And to Frank Oz's credit, when they had a, they, everybody read, and he said, we need more scenes like this. And it was a scene where Jim and Lon John hoist up into the night and see the stars and do the, that's all stolen. And it was like me and Jake when in upstate New York. Yeah. One of the problems we were having in, in West Camp was casting Kermit and Miss Piggy. And so I would go in, and Brian nah, it doesn't work." Kermit would never play that part. As if they were sentient beings, <laughs> and you're dealing with mo- a, mo- a bunch of movie stars under contract. Right. <laughs> what are you gonna do with Miss Piggy in a pirate movie? Well, she could be, you know, no, that's, yeah. or she could be the cook. You know, the, that's not a big enough part. We finally came up with Benjamin again, the who'd been marooned. So then that starts the whole process. Okay, what happens to an island that Miss Piggy is marooned on? <laughs> These are the kinds of creative questions. Yeah. So, but when you have a personality, a movie star, it's like, okay, what are we gonna have? Uh, what are we gonna have? Um, it's like, what are you gonna do with Whoopi Goldberg? Uh-huh. If Whoopi Goldberg's Benjamin Gun, you know, what? How does that impact what happens on the island? So Miss Piggy is a genuine star with 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 a personality and things she will do and don't do, you know. So that was we that we had so much fun because then it just went crazy and especially since she's she's had relationships with other pirates and we had to cut some lines we had some lines into the parents in the previews thought were a little too far
0: okay
1: and we couldn't find a role for Kermit could not find a role one of one of Long John's pirates didn't work nothing And we finally came up with Smollett righteous Stiff, good man know, right, yeah. but was an, the extra lover of. Of Benjamin Gunn.
0: Yes, she has a few lovers. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and because he would literally, literally say, "No, if Kermit can't play that kind of part. He'll never be able to carry it off. Never right. be able to pull it off."
0: In the spirit of the Hensons and a lot of your screenplays, you collaborate with other writers. Can you tell me, like nuts and bolts level, how you work in those relationships with a writing partner? How you tackle it?
1: Well, not very well in the beginning. <laughs> sure. uh, all the scripts I had written up until I did Hook were me by myself. And I was usually writing an original or a, something that I had come up with or, or an assignment, but it was usually me. So uh, on Hook, it was a big learning curve for me. When I realized that they were going to bring in Malia, and I, I felt a, a great amount of ownership in, in in that. I remember when Steve and I first started working, he wanted to bring X to the table like he wanted robin's character to be a investment banker and have all this the big deals he's working on all that kind of stuff that's what i had done in my first draft Mm. the producers the original producers wanted it out they wanted him to be more more humane more benevolent more like jimmy stewart than kind of a more ruthless version of jimmy stewart who's all about the deal it's all about the deal so i realized that when i said that Stephen went I learned something right then and there. Let the the director have their vision. Don't tell them you've already done it. And Dustin wanted his own writer. He wanted his own voice for his character, so they brought Malia in. And Kathy Kennedy was actually great about it. They knew it was going to be a blow to me, and they put me off in a big office writing, doing outlines and outlines and outlines, which was fine. And finally it came time for Malia to come on board, and she lived in New York. We both had Columbia connections. We'd never met. And I said, Kathy, why don't you let me meet her? The two of us in New York. She went, great idea. So Malia and I sat down in our apartment and connected. She told me all the stuff she loved about what it was there and what, and what, and she was honored to be part of it. And it, she, Dustin sort of plucked her out of obscurity, and you know, uh, suddenly she was the the darling of the process. But we connected and we trusted each other, and we were honest with each other. So. I knew that anytime she had a problem, she would come to me. I was seeing all the rewrites. I was weighing in with Stephen. Uh, she's a wonderful human being. She had a great ride in it, and uh, Dustin kind of got what he wanted. And I think S- Stephen knew he had to placate Dustin somehow because they had such a t- um, difficult time getting on the screen what, what Stephen wanted on the screen. So that was a big lesson for me. And what I've learned is instead of avoiding and I learned it, I read the, I read the Writer's Guild. You're supposed to be in touch with her. If you're being replaced, the writer that's replacing you is obligated to contact you and let you know that. I took the other inverse. I went to her and said, let's meet. After that, Dracula was sole credit. It's the only sole credit I've ever gotten except for Give Me an that's F. That's right. But it was a collaboration. Maybe the greatest collaboration I'll ever have. Tucker over last night I was brought in to rewrite because again, Disney, they were going to pull the plug on the project. Sissy Spacex signed on. Sir Ben signed on. Bill Hurt signed on. Based it's a great on my, Based on my script.
0: So it sounds like a lot of these were replacement scenarios. Were any of them dual from the beginning working as collaborators? Yeah. Or maybe uh, let's, even let's, with your son now? That's what I, mean. I do
1: now with Jake and uh, with Amanda. And so how do you, how Nick. do you,
0: how do you, like, what's the formula for making that an effective process? Are yeah, you it's writing? All,
1: it's all different. Usually the way Jake and I work, we'll we'll beat, we'll beat out an outline. He he, We have to. Uh, and he likes to do the first draft. He's fearless and he just goes. Dad, you take too long, you know, I'm going. Uh, we did it on Sirens of Titan for Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, we did it on Cat's Cradle for Kurt Vonnegut, uh, where he would just immerse himself and go. We've we've done like six or seven scripts together. Amanda and I have done about four. It's hard for us, She we need to be in the same room and agree on stuff and then go away. She's really good at forcing me to deal with character. She's an actor. Where Jake is really good at he the stuff he finds on how to dramatize something, a piece of exposition, or how to dramatize um, um, mine a moment where 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 there's something meaningful that has to come out of it, he's great at that.
0: What do you think up and coming writers should have in their arsenal? Should they have? Does it depend on their interests, or should they always just have a feature, a pilot, a digital series
1: now? To me, television is is where the opportunities are, unless you're writing for Marvel or something. And they're all looking for the the next, the the new batch of writers that are coming up. We're sponsoring a a female writer-director who's done a lot of shorts that have won uh, awards. And I kept telling her, I can't do anything unless you write a script. Show me a script. So she had three scripts that she couldn't finish. And she had this idea for a TV show that blew me away and Scott Wynett, great television director, and I are now mentoring her and sponsoring her, but she's the writer. It's a lookbook and three 30-minute epi- three episodes. So you're going in with, it's not just a pitch. You're going, you'd like the pitch? Here. Or here's the lookbook. You want to hear the pitch? Here's the scripts. More and more, I think you have to go in, you have to sh- be on the, you have to be further down the field than the old days. In The old days, you pitch, you get paid. It's great. We love it. Now they want more, which is fine. Because they, there's so many there's so many opportunities. Just finding a way to crack how do you get how do you get your foot in the door?
0: Well, some of my friends want to be in features. And because it seems like studios and companies are not really buying specs anymore, original specs, how how do these writers that want to make features that are maybe not easy enough to shoot as an indie, how do they break in?
1: Well, it's a, a good question. Uh, I think there's more opportunities now than there ever have been. for for new writers. Um, We didn't have ISA or ScreenCraft or um, the Blacklist or any of those platforms when I was trying to get in the business. So there are now hundreds of people looking for the next good thing. ISA or Stage 32, you can subscribe in and become a member. They have have, uh, contests, they have genre, they have access, they bring in 10 producers, you're gonna go pitch. And if you're a threshold writer, that's not a bad place to start. I just mentored two sisters uh, out of uh, New York, and they're on the blacklist now. So those platforms are really valuable. And there are still the under-million-dollar, the under-five-million-dollar, the under-two-million-dollar money out there that's looking for those scripts, Uh, especially genre, thriller, sci-fi, horror, not so much rom-com.
0: Do you think that writers should pick a genre that they're particularly strong at and that becomes their calling card, or should they showcase a range
1: of material. Well, I'm the wrong person to ask that because you look at my stuff and you go, Who, "What's what What? What is he? What else?
0: What, what's <laughs> his specialty?"
1: Pirate, the, well, Pirates. Pirates is my is my my uh, my muse. But also classic
0: literature. I mean, so many of your films come from books.
1: Sci-fi and horror and um, the the kind of psychological thriller seem to be a sweet spot for a lot of uh, broadcasts uh, and streamers. If you're Disney, you can do you can do family. You want to It's a family and YA. If you're Netflix, you can go as dark as you want to, depending on which division you're hitting that <laughs> that day or what new division they started up last night. Right. Apple is still is still finding its way. Uh, Spectrum has got it seems to have a certain adult grown up thing going on, but they're going to expand. Amazon, I don't know. Right.
0: Well, they say so much. Write what you know.
1: That, that's what I did when I started. I wrote about cheerleading and wrote about being a frat rat. So, yes, in the beginning, I wrote about something I knew a lot about and found a voice. But if you're going to be a, um, a writer that they come to with assignments or you get to – we've got this book we want you to look at, you should have a, a broad range. Now, Stephen King is known for one kind of work. But, you know, even Stand By Me is, is his American Graffiti, you know. Uh, so he actually found that soulful – place to go to from his childhood.
0: That brings up a good point. How, for you, because you've adapted a lot of classic books, you've got that author's intent, you have the expectations of the fans who love the book, and you're trying to be your own author of this story as well. How have you negotiated those three elements? Well,
1: the first thing I learned about adaptation is that you have to create a new original. It has to be keep the, the integrity of the author's vision and story. But you if you don't bring something new to the table, it's going to be a six-hour a six movie. You know, And so you start trying to find... It took me seven years to figure out where to collapse Dracula, how to squeeze it down. I've had all different experiences. Uh, the adaptation of Tucker Everlasting, Natalie Babbitt hated the movie. It gave me a B-plus on the adaptation. She was told, don't let him turn it into a teenage romance. And I asked Natalie, okay, said, okay so you've written a 10-year-old girl with the voice of a 30-year-old, and she's gonna be running around in the woods with a 17-year-old hunk. Is that what you wanna see on the screen? <laughs> and she went, oh. I said, so, you know, it's a teenage romance. Right. And with Clive Cussler, who had a gigantic success with Sahara, very bitter, very, you know, doesn't think anybody in Hollywood can write. So I made him write his own draft of the script. Oh, interesting. Because he had approval. Uh-huh. So I said, okay, you write, You you go write the script. And how did that pan out? Oh, talky, 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 you know, nothing They couldn't get the visual language going. With uh, Carl Sagan, it was heaven.
0: Yeah, actually, I have more process questions, but I do want to go back to contact. Sure. Because it is, I had actually never seen contact until I was preparing to meet with you. Wow. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You don't get out much. Well, you know. I I'm 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 an earth guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an earthy guy. So space is not something I normally go toward, but I was blown away. I cried like four times. <laughs> I'm serious. And I rewatched the scene when Ellie arrives yeah. at the beach. Yeah. And like even now I'm getting emotional about it because it, it's how I need to if that scene didn't work, the whole movie That's would have right. fallen apart. That's right. And somehow you Elegantly crafted in that one scene, the personal between Ellie and her father, science and God, and re- just rewatching the the shots and how it was put together and every I mean, how? Just tell me about that scene.
1: The scene is in the book, uh, and it's the, when we first when I first started working with Carl, that that's 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 the center. That's what the book is all building to. Yeah, is that moment. And but there's no relationship with her father in the book. It's a real convoluted thing. You not, your father is not really your father. He remarried, and he's over here, and he died. And there's no tactile connection with her father. And we ta- I talked to Carl about it. I said this is the this is the scene everybody's waiting for. But you've got no relationship. There's nothing. You've got to go build that. So when she loses him and he reappears in the galaxy, that's what she's been looking for. But that scene is in the book I did a bunch of rewrites on it Michael Goldenberg did a bunch of rewrites on it and a non-credited writer Minno Mays who should have gotten credit did a bunch of work on it that scene was probably rewritten more than any other scene in the film wow my first pass at the scene was 10 pages long and mine was based on mine was cl- closer to the book but then we began to shrink it down and find those little nuggets but but you know there, there was a moment that they cut out where you have your mother's hands, the ring that you, know, you have your mother's hands, you know, and and the gold um, sand circle in the palm of his hand was cut out of the film too. There was pi. The studio execs didn't want any math in 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 the film. Uh, Carl's conceit was if you if you carry pi out to a transcendental number, if you carry pi out to uh, far enough. It suddenly stops being transcendental, and you see the author's signature. There's a pattern that registers that can only be the signature of the creator. Mm. So you could prove the universe is created, but not by God. So Carl was g- generous enough and a collaborator enough to realize that you're right. Let's we've got to build her world, and and a relationship with her father to get to that point. Yeah, and my Goldberg did a did a stunning job with the with the funeral because uh, I, I didn't have the funeral. I had the death and the telescope and the and the but he came back with that aftermath of the funeral, which was which was really brilliant. When that's when you see LA change. What do, I don't need God. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> thanks God. Uh because Carl didn't believe in God, and uh I kept telling him, but you're proving the existence of God. No, he said, I'm proving the existence of not God. It's math. Yeah.
0: No, it's it's both,
1: is what I got from it. It's,
0: you know, you there's it, it meant to me there's like scientific evidence of things we don't know, which is God, but it requires faith to not only believe in that, but to believe in the science of what, you know. Well,
1: you know, she never uses the word faith. She can't make herself say it. Right. And um, I got a lot of phone calls after the film came out from my Texas religious gang. Preachers wanted me to come and speak in the pulpit about because she went to heaven. And I went, that's not heaven, guys. It's a simulation, you know, that she wasn't meeting her father in heaven. Then I went, wait a minute, you know what? Let them believe it, you know, because it's still. Well, that's the yeah, that's let it's best it.
0: to have people interpret as yeah. they, especially yeah. with things that are so sensitive like God and yeah. <laughs> religion and yeah. all that.
1: Well, and Carl, the, 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 if the book was a diatribe, was a, a almost like a, uh, Galileo's uh, uh, conversation between the devil and the Pope. The book was a diatribe between religious right and, and science left, tug of war. That's why I thought it was impossible to adapt. And the ending, the, the ending that Carl and I wrote is not the ending of the film. That's my one big complaint well, about What was the ending? Um, Zemeckis did not want there to be a definitive proof that what happened to her actually happened. He wanted it to be ambiguous, mm. which is not the book. And Jimmy Woods having a conversation with the the, uh, I can't remember At the her trial? Name. Yeah. No, the, no. Oh, the, afterwards. Uh, with the, with, with the, the vice 18 president. hours yeah, of static. Yeah. So in our ending, she's doing the tour with the kids. She and Joseph had a kid, a three-year-old kid. Okay. He's off in South America doing his thing, and she's there with the to tour. But they, but part of her deal was they gave her this giant computer, and she's in there carrying, she, she's carrying out pi, trying to prove that the universe was created and that prove that this actually happened. Because she now she's not even convinced. You know, she doesn't, did I, did I dream it? So uh, she's giving the kids a tour and she can't find her kid. And they all walk into the big computer room and there's Sammy, who's based on Carl's kid. Sammy's sitting there watching the big screen and all the numbers are printing out, you know. And all of a sudden, it locks up and you begin to see these circles of zeros that are that are in an intricate pattern like an atom. Ellie realizes that the, that no matter where you are, In the universe, because circles are not natural in nature. They're created. Mm -hmm. All atoms, everybody, you know, all the nuclear, everything. We've all got, whether you're a million miles from, a million light years from here, there's atoms. And they're all identical. And she realizes that this was proof the universe was created, that it did happen. And that she knows it. And the audience knows it. You know, it doesn't matter what the, how they pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and how they debunked her and all that. It doesn't matter. And you go out and you see Haddon, you see, you go out to Saturn, you have a pizza, you have a basketball, (laughs) you've got a a donut. I mean, you've got all these things that are circles and you you have your atoms, all the things. So
0: that's
1: cool. That was an ending that uh, it landed. It did happen. It's true. The universe was created, but it doesn't have to be the way you think it was. Mm So, Demekes did a spectacular job. It's so, so did, beautiful. And so did Michael, and so did should have gotten credit. And Jody's amazing. Jody got that movie made. She lived through two directors and four other screenwriters. Wow. Trivia: Who was supposed to direct Contact?
0: No idea. George Miller.
1: Oh, really? That's the that one I been... want. That's the one I wanted to see. Whoa, yeah. Edgy. His, Edgy. his <laughs> script with with Minnow Mays was phenomenal, and I mean, it, it, he, he began to bring all these forces together. I was so excited that george was going to direct it and they had a budget they had i think he fell out over a two million dollar budget issue and a a little creative difference with jody or something but i mean that was the content i wanted to see sure
0: do you have any books or specific screenplays or resources for writers that you think are you just can't live without
1: yeah um chris vogler and i are, are great friends and great mates and we've done workshops together the writer's journey memo from the, the story department are two essential books uh, for anybody write any writing but uh, Chris took the Joseph Campbell protocol and dogma and and made it specifically about about screenwriting it is easily more valuable than Robert McKee yeah it's, it's a book you'll take off the shelf and use over and over again memo from the story department he actually wrote a memo when he was at Disney working on Lion King he was head of the story department he wrote a memo to Katzenberg about this is what readers should be looking for, this is what we should be doing in our film, this is how we should be, approach-. and he circulated it. So Didn't, it's tell, out there. didn't tell Chris, he circulated it, and it went all over town, so. Cool, yeah.
0: and, and are there any screenplays you think are just like near perfection that are must-reads for people?
1: Let me do one more book. Okay. Uh, the Poetics. Oh, yes, Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. but that, that, I'm serious, that 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 book was was the first writer's manual totally That's definitely good um screenplays wow i think uh, robert town's chinatown it's all i mean literally find find not not the transcribed draft but the his original draft is textbook because it is the movie francis coppola when he what was it the one uh, godfather 2 if you can get it all the you know he does a lot in the editing room but all that parallel story between uh, young uh, uh, young veto and and michael is, is brilliantly done i just read the script for 1917. really
0: was it two pages no
1: <laughs> no and it's quite remarkable how obviously you're not you, you don't know where they're changing the cuts and all that stuff it doesn't indicate that but it's quite a beautiful read and also um if you could find a draft of um fisher kings richard ravennais wrote
0: i actually have it yeah. i have the book they have a book of the script yeah.
1: Pitcher King is a really great screenplay.
0: And other than use the hard chart, <laughs> what what advice do you have for burgeoning film uh writers, screenwriters?
1: What what do you tell your own children? <laughs> <laughs> I told my children not to get in the business. Uh <laughs> I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the the best thing to do is to not okay. When you think you're finished and you think you want to submit this to X, Y, and Z contest or agent or manager who said they'll read your script don't think just don't don't think it's done don't be in a hurry and don't don't tell them that, that, that they'll say we, don't, we know it's a first draft you know don't believe that you're down to getting one shot find a friendly face find a friend, a friend who will tell you the truth or find someone you know in the industry whatever contacts you got but don't expose it to, to initially to a place that, that where you can fall from and and have it be a setback
0: mm-hmm. How many people do you have read your work if you were solo not working with
1: um John Levin reads he's the only one of the only representatives I would ever trust to give you honest dope and he has great ideas. Jake, uh Amanda, but Judy used to read, my wife used to read all the time, but she's grandmother a year right now, who will give you honest, dead on feedback. Yeah. Um
0: and people in the industry and outside the industry.
1: Yeah. Like I have, I have people that aren't in the industry that just know me that because I'll, I'll find out what it is they didn't get or they got, or they, or they saw that I didn't see or where they were confused. So find an audience that, because I'm a big audience guy. What is it, you know, you'll see it in the toolkit. What do the audience know? What do they need to know? How do they find out? When do they find out? Or are they satisfied with what, they, with, with what they're finding out <laughs> and when? So. You, if you can't read your own work, if, I try to bring the audience with me now. So when I read my own work, I'm the audience. That pronoun, I don't know who that character is. I should have used the name. That's that simple. I learned that from Gary Marshall. You got too many pronouns in your screenplay. You got to have less pronouns. I don't know who's talking. <laughs> you know?
0: When you're doing revisions on your scripts, each time you do a revi- revision, what are you focusing on? Do you go in with a plan? I'm only looking at the script with these glasses on. Oh, okay. And what are they?
1: Okay, Eric Roth has an interesting practice that I've started doing. Every day he goes back to page one and reads to wherever he stopped the day before. Oh, because you're when you're out here sixty pages into the script, you know, and you're and you're and you're going. Sometimes if you go back to page one and read it up to the point, you don't need this, you don't need that, or this makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. I think my biggest, my biggest thing is how you want the reader to be oriented on the page, and I will wrestle and fight and 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 mangle and and control and jigger to have the to have the end the ending the last line on that page, making you want to turn it to go to the next. And you, I mean, you'll take out little, you know. It's because sometimes you want that thought completed before you turn the page or you want there to be such anticipation. They can't wait to turn the page to see what the answer is. So that has to do with everything. Description. I try, the first thing I try to do is call out my description. I'm over, I over, I overwrite my description. They tell me don't direct on the page. And not meaning this camera angle, but the detail in which you paint the picture. So I'm learning how to use fewer words to paint the picture, to evoke an emotion, to give you a sense of time and place, to orient you as to where you're at in the uh, in in the world, because uh, you can. I mean, I can cut. I I'll, I'll end up cutting three or four pages out of a out of a tight draft. Just line editing, leaner, fewer. You know, leaner words that mean the same thing. That's a big one. Uh, making sure the characters' voices are different. That you It's not just your voice in every character. A and pet, how do you do that? Well, you you people don't speak in complete sentences. They stop and start. They might have a pet phrase. They might have a bad habit. Um, uh, they might they might have to stop and rethink what they were about to say and start over. Also, certain people have a certain meter to their uh, choice of words. Somebody who's, you can tell they're, they, they're an academic by the way they speak. You can tell somebody else is a, a car salesman by the way they speak. So you go and look for those kinds of colors in the language so that they're identifiable, they don't all sound the same. And nobody speaks in complete sentences and in correct English. They just don't. And as someone who started as an actor, do you ever
0: put yourself in there and, you know, experiment with the role and act it out or have people? Well,
1: it always helps to, to, to read it out loud and, and hear in, or have, or have you know, we'll do that when we're writing together. Let's read it out loud. Just read the scene back. And suddenly you went way well, that That's way too many words. There's all kinds of ways now to use the screenwriting programs. They have voices, which drive me crazy. It's usually in my head or when I, talk, I speak it out loud, I'm going to hear what it sounds like. And you might call somebody over. Can you just read this? And how do you know when you're done? I don't. I'm never done. Never done. Yeah. There's always something you're going to find you can do. Being done and being satisfied are two different things. I can be satisfied and go, okay, I've I got the ending and lands where I want the ending to land and it does what I want it to do. And I got there in a way that I believe the audience will accept.
0: And, and then that's you can
1: what, share it. That's what the toolkit's for. Yeah, it puts you through all of those tests and all the, all of those challenges, and forces you to: Are you satisfied? Do you have a satisfying ending? Did you cheat? Did you pull the rug out? When, did you? Did you? Is there a logical way you arrive at this ending without you know being convenient and, and lazy? Um, well,
0: tell tell us more about the heart chart.
1: Well, the heart chart uh, is a, a story mapping tool that came out of my process with Dracula with Francis. With all the things I've told you that Coppola did, all the planning, all the pre planning, all the rehearsing, all the, the storyboards and the editing and what have you, and the video, we still got to the editing room and we had problems. And he called me to come out. And it was, he called me one night late. I was in New York and the phone rings and Judy says, It's Coppola. He wants to talk to you. And it's like midnight for me. So he knows what time it is. I know I'm fucked. <laughs> so he says, Hart, I want you to get on a plane in the morning and come out here. So I hate you. I hate the script. I hate the movie. I hate the actors. I hate the studio. I hate the. I hate the, the, ever getting involved in this. I'm, you know, I want to show you that movie. <laughs> and I'm going great. 15 years of my life, I have the greatest director in the world, and he hates me and the script. And I did. Yeah, I got out there. I flew out there. I checked in the hotel. I go over to the, the trope and down in the Godfather screening room. It's about 10 o'clock at night. With the big old leather chairs and cigars and wine and and actually two women who spoke Romanian and I don't know why what they, but he didn't come down he's up in the his penthouse you know. <laughs> he calls me he said okay you ready yes yeah, yes sir said I want you to call me as soon as you finish so I'll come down and we'll talk and I got drunker and drunker and drunker and angrier and angrier and angrier it was a piece of shit and I'd been on the set I'd seen the dailies it was awful wow. So it's about, I guess, one in the morning, and the phone rings. He said, you haven't called me. I said, I, <laughs> I don't like it either. I hate you too. I hate this piece of shit. <laughs> so he says, I'll be right down. So he comes down. He's like an 18-year-old kid. He's all bubbly and everything, you know, and nothing phases him. He said, I want to tell you about the movie that I want to make. And I'm going, it's a little late. We've got a release date in three months or four months. So he pitches me the story that I thought we had done. Except that what he had was identifying was places where we had the footage had not informed us enough to know about a performance, or we were missing a piece of narrative. We were missing a piece of logic, like the pronoun. Something little that, you know. So we sat in the editing room for the next two weeks, went through all the footage, all the takes, you know, I was making notes, and we literally rewrote the story to follow the same exact storyline and structure, but filling in holes and blanks. We didn't reshoot one scene we shot pieces that were missing. And the best example i give you is the ending. Uh, in the end, uh, the script ended with her putting the knife through Dracula. Spoiler alert, it's about vampires a lot of blood. Uh, putting the knife through uh, Dracula's heart. And then she's redeemed, you know, the wafer, go- the scar goes away and, and uh, they kiss. And then she gets up and walks out the doors and walks off with Keanu Reeves into the sunset. And the audience hates that, hates it so george lucas looks at we 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 refine that we refine the cut we find some places we know we're going to go reshoot uh, or shoot new pieces he's got to convince the studio he wants lucas to see the cut lucas and mike minola come and see the cut and lucas says at the end you're breaking your rules you know you're you're you've set up all these rules about how to kill a vampire and you don't do it she's got to cut off his head you know that's the only way that she can redeem him and then nobody wants to see her walk away with keanu they want to see some other incarnation of them together. So Francis calls me, and I had gone back to New York by that point, and he calls me and says, um, so um, do you think we can get Winona to come in and cut off Gary's head? That's what Lucas says we should do. And I went, that's the only way you'll get Winona to come back. (laughs) (laughs) So literally a year later, and he was brilliant with the sets. He did the sets like a theater set where you could fold it up and shove it in the, and save it. He saved that chapel set. So, in the ending now, and Gary and Winona came back. They were all on other projects, you know, and they did not get along. Oh, really? Oh, um, there's no. Okay. It was a very difficult time. Um, and they're both brilliant in, in the film. So, in that last cut, you will see, in that last scene in the film when they walk in, lay down, she kill, you know, and then she cuts off his head. There are shot. There are medium shots and wide shots and close ups that were taken a year apart. Wigs all came back costumes came back look but you know and it works and then you finish with a freeze up in the top now i kept saying to francis through this whole process why didn't we figure this out why couldn't we do this in the script why did we get here with air script everybody was happy with all that you know you did your thing and we're still facing these problems i said "I i got to figure out a way to do this i got to figure out a way to to head this off in the past with an independent Guy's not going to be able to come in and do what you just did, what we just did. So he said, well, there's maybe some questions you could ask. <laughs> so it's so an old journalism trick. And he gave me the three core questions. You know, when we meet the main character, what do they want? You know, and then the second question was, wh- who are the rel- relationships and what are the obstacles they have to negotiate and navigate to get what they want? And then the trick question. In the end, did they get what they want or not get what they want? And is it good or bad for them if they did or didn't, dot, dot, dot. Did they get what they need? And I'm going, why didn't? So, <laughs> so, yeah. it's character-driven instead of plot-driven. So I started messing with those questions and coming up with, you know, trying to answer for Gary, trying to answer for Renona, trying to to see what was already there and and measure it. Then we came up with some more questions. They're all in the toolkit. And they're questions you steal from everybody's got their own. Why now? What are you afraid of? Right. But the big one for me was do you have a satisfying ending that was a new one i came up with that one not happy sad good bad satisfying and then i started working backwards so i started applying these questions to anything i was going to write or i had written let the characters talk to me then i began to apply that towards this heart chart which is a signpost structural signposts i've also stolen or created that I was beginning to find that any good narrative, whether it's a fairy tale or a movie that that goes through and has a satisfying ending, hits these signposts at some place along the way. And I began to test it on my films, and then I was beginning to test it on other films. And then it became a phenomenon at Austin Film Festival, where every year I do, you know, I did La La Land, I did uh, Get Out, I did uh, um, uh, Eighth Grade. I mean, you know, you do other people's films, and there are May, I did I did Graham Morris's uh, Imitation Game. They're amazed at how their instinctive paradigm fit the chart. But the chart also shows you what's missing, well, when you've lost a character for too long. I've had too many depressing moments because everything is ticked down. It measures the heartbeat and the emotional journey of your characters. How does it do that?
0: You make the decision. You make the de- okay.
1: That's what it, does it write the script for me? No, but if if you're if you're plotting out how important is it? How how big a success is this? How big a blow and a hit is this? Are you just, are you, are you, are you cruising here? You know, waiting for that next spike. Right. And so. then I found some top of the mountain, dead center. Every good narrative I've found and taken apart, there is a top of the mountain moment in the dead center of the narrative where you think your characters are going to make it. Something good happens. I don't care what it is. Indiana Jones. He got the girl, he got the arc, he got the truck, he was on the way home, he's on the boat, he's going home about to get laid in the back rub, and the Nazis show up. So the movie's not over. That happens one hour into that film same thing with uh, cinderella that was my first thing with cinderella look at the structure of cinderella dead center of the story she gets to go to the ball not the end of the movie right wait she stays too long point of no return can't undo it and then she's chained back to the bathroom in the castle plan falls apart i mean to find those those moments which you you could give a name to in fairy tales and in also great structure
0: yeah yeah so it prompts you with these questions you're filling in the blanks and whatever's left over are the things you need to address and you can see you can visually
1: see them on the chart. I, I couldn't cards on the wall didn't work for me. I could never tell where I was emotionally. Mm-hmm. But the chart tells you where you are emotionally. Very cool. Yeah. And the and the questions force you to write. Yeah. that's why my claim is you'll never face a blank page. Again. Some shitty ones, but not a blank one. <laughs> so just by answering the questions, you're writing. And if you answer the questions, you have created a character-driven narrative as opposed to plot driven which is always my problem
0: can you can you start with no script and just take no it's your hard chart and just I go? got
1: a, I got a character who wants to um uh have, be transformed into once a gender gender operation wants to be a woman guy wants to be a woman so what do they want they want to be a you know what are the obstacles money uh physical condition parents hate me you know do you get the operation or do you not get the operation and if you do do you get what you need what does that character need what you want is your ego that's what drives the first half of the narrative. What you need is what you discover. Indiana Jones. What does he want? He wants the Ark. What does he pursue? The Ark. The Ark, the Ark, the Ark. Even when they take the Ark away from him, he still pursues it. It's when he finds out what he needs, when he's got the bazooka aimed down at the at Belush and and buddy, and they've got they've got uh, uh Ravenwood, they've got Marion. And he says, "You keep the Ark, I'll take the girl." So his entire life was about taking those relics and giving them value. And the ark was the, with, with the ark was the golden fleece, and he gave it up because found out what he needed was her. And that's that is pop culture, but it's also great storytelling, great structure. Yeah. yeah. And I can do it. I can do it a hundred. You know, it's if you look at, if you start looking at films and storytelling and TV series or whatever, they all have these elements. Sure. Your job but is how you use them.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it's hard
1: to see. And it's not a formula. I mean There's not one chart to select. Yeah.
0: So the heart chart is great if you're just got an idea and you need help getting that first draft out. And it's a great system evaluation to see where you're at with something you already have.
1: It's a great rewrite tool. It started out as a rewrite tool, but now I use it to jump to, to break story.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And do you have uh, like a... Promo code or tell us the website. Uh, go to like
1: www.heartchart.com. <laughs> you can download the toolkit. Uh, use ISA20 uh, discount code. Save you twenty percent. The story mapping tool is an app that stays online. All of your all of your charts stay in the cloud. Once you take the toolkit and do what the toolkit forces you to do, you then have input and in intel to load into your chart.
0: Awesome.
1: You can load parts of your script in. You can have up to as many characters as you want. You can move and shift and change the names of the signposts. You can change, you know, you, there's, it's pretty, ver- you can draw on it, um, but it's not a, it doesn't, you got it's. it takes me about two or three hours to do a chart once I have all that intel. Okay. But once you have that chart, you can manipulate it, you can change it, you can save it, and you can animate it. You can make it come to life. So you, really? can, see, you can see all the characters and what they're doing Wow. Uh, that's my favorite part. I put music on really loud and push the animate button and watch it come to life.
0: Well, definitely we'll, we'll put the website again, www.hartchart.com <laughs> in the show notes so people can pursue that and use it and improve their mm-hmm. screenwriting abilities. And I started with quotes, so I just want to end with <laughs> a quote. Again, I'm stealing it from you and from Contact. I was given something wonderful. Something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant we are, but how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. I wish I could share that. I wish that everyone, if only for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and hope. That continues to be my wish.
1: That's Carl Sagan. That's Carl Sagan. That is what he wanted people to take away from this film: that we were all citizens of a galaxy. That we just wise up and 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 stop killing each other, and stop destroying the planet, and join that galaxy that's waiting for us. In closing, there's something that I always say that that um, the especially to new writers, because um, you're going to get the shit kicked out of you along the way. And Frank Pearson was my mentor. Who took me under his wing while Hook and Dracula were being made at Sundance? Because I was not, I didn't, wasn't handling any of this very well. We got drunk one night in the um, the hole in the wall bar. Frank gave me a very wise piece of wisdom. He said, you know, he said, kid, you know, I know you're you, when you're your darkest hour, you don't think anybody likes your stuff, and they hate your work or they've taken it away from you and somebody else is doing it. He said, just remember that no director, not even those two big directors you're working with, no actor. No DP, no sound person, no composer, no costume designer, no set designer, not even the guy that's serving you donuts. None of them have a job until you type the end. And I went, thanks, Frank. I needed that pat on the back. And it was years later when I saw the credits at the end of one of my films at Fox did, where uh, it said, the last credit, it said over 12,000 jobs are created in the making and and, uh, authorized distribution of this motion picture. Over one million work hours were expended in the making of this motion picture. Then it named all the babies that were born over the years or something. But it made me realize that we're job creators. We're not just writers, We, we create jobs. Last year in the television world, there were 340 something series aired on all platforms. There's are several million jobs that were created because some writer had the courage to go in and type the in, and it's only going to get bigger. So, when you are feeling like you, your your shit doesn't work and you're not going to see the light of day, or that you know somebody nobody's going to pick your stuff up, just just remember that you're a job creator. Every script you write is the potential to create thousands, hundreds, maybe millions of jobs.
0: Yes, uh, writers have the hardest job. They're creating out of nothing just a blank page and yet somehow they are often the least appreciated and mm-hmm. it's sad but when the films get made and people like me little kids living in key west mm-hmm. who see a movie that hits them at the right place in time and seriously jim you know your movies and your work made me want to be in this industry made me believe that I could be a creative person and that this was a real way to live your life. And it gave me hope during dark times. And Mm -hmm. every time I've rewatched Hook and your other films, they just helped me remember what to really value in life and what to appreciate. And that's the beauty of being in this art form or in any art form that lasts through generations and generations is you're going to be around forever and it's for the better (laughs) because your films are just so beautiful and they really are needed now
1: well it's as, as tuck said you don't have to live forever you just have to live
0: yeah, yeah. enjoy this life yeah
1: no kidding thank you so, i'm i'm uh, i'm not very good at accepting compliments so
0: that's okay but it
1: but uh, it, it does please me when people recall or remember or come up to you and say this scene or this per this uh, this character or this line because you don't know you don't know how what you're doing is going to affect people that you may meet some day or not meet, you know? You never know.
0: Well, here we are 20, 23 years later and you're sitting across from me. So it just shows you that dreams come true and you just just have the faith and you keep going and you surround yourself with people and stories that motivate you and give you that sense of connection. I don't have any choice. (laughs) Yeah, I guess.
1: Don't have any choice. (laughs)
0: Well, thank you so very much. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you. What? This is great.
0: Wow, wow, wow. All I can say is wow. I will cherish this conversation with Jim forever. If you made it through the whole interview, I hope you enjoyed it. It was so great to have you with us. And as always, please don't forget to talk about us, share us on social media. You can follow us at movie mentors podcast on instagram find us on facebook we would truly love to connect with you we engage on there with lots of behind the scenes stuff and cool trivia and fun games so please follow us on there also don't forget about the heart chart that was www.hartchart.com and that coupon code was isa20 to save you 20 percent on the toolkit It is an amazing, amazing resource if you are a screenwriter or an aspiring screenwriter, so definitely check that out. Also, you may have noticed that I added a Support Movie Mentors button to our link tree. And here's the thing, everybody. If you've dabbled in podcasting, you know this is a very, very time-consuming craft. It took me a good 40 hours to put this episode together when it's all said and done and i do everything by myself so i know times are tough right now but if you've been enjoying the show if you love what we're doing here and you want more of it please do consider hitting that support movie mentors button it'll take you to paypal and if you have a few quarters and dimes laying around and want to send it this way it would certainly mean a lot i would like to thank gabe Sokolov for the music James V Hart again for being on the show. And of course, all of you for listening and tuning in from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Stay healthy, stay safe, and don't forget to think happy thoughts. Take care, everyone.